Welcome to the Ransom Life Podcast. Ransom Life is a nonprofit in San Antonio, Texas, and our vision is to see every exploited youth redeemed and restored. Our mission is to equip and empower exploited youth to experience freedom and purpose, and we accomplish this through mentoring, counseling, and awareness. Our hope for this podcast is to bring you information on child sex trafficking that is easy to listen to and easy to share. So we hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello, and thank you for joining us again for another episode of the Ransom Life Podcast. This is episode number 11, and my name is James, and joining me today, as she always is, well, actually, Srace is not here with me today, but that's because we have a special episode for you. We have a, uh, we're going to be playing a clip from a conversation that I had with John Pulley. And John Pulley is, he's a leader in the anti-trafficking movement. Uh, he's a demand reduction expert at Fierce Freedom in Wisconsin. And uh, he also works closely with Man Alive Expedition. And uh, with this uh, clip that we're going to be playing, you're going to be uh, hearing his story. And you'll be hearing about how there was a time in his life where he, was a purchaser of sex. And uh, far too often people tend to demonize those who purchase sex without understanding why buyers do what they do. And so the reason why we're wrapping up our pornography series with this story is because John talks about how he was exposed to pornography at 14 years old and how porn played a role in his life. So we're going to go ahead and get this clip started and we'll meet with you back again at the end. When I first learned about uh, human trafficking, I mean, when I very first heard about it, I was in uh, Dallas, Texas, a gateway church, and Christine Kane was speaking. You know, she'd come in from Australia and she was speaking. And she did a story about how, um, you know, a million people is a statistic, right? You can, and you hear about the million, but you, that doesn't have an impact. It's when you hear about the one, when you meet the one, that all of a sudden the statistic becomes a story. The statistic becomes something that's tangible that you can touch. And I think that when it comes to talking about the buyer side of the equation, when it comes to human trafficking, I think that's something that, first of all, let's just be honest about this topic. This topic is uncomfortable for most people. It is not an easy topic to talk about. No one wants to talk about exploitation and slavery of human beings, let alone children. And so there tends to be around this topic just I don't know how to say it except to say just kind of a, a bit of a, a hands off. Let's talk briefly about it, but let's not really dive into it. In particular, when it comes to the people who are being victimized, uh, you start talking about traffickers and buyers, and it's real easy just to begin feeling the hatred for them and feeling the frustration about people that are actually going to take someone's life and exploit it. And I think that the general public has a view of buyers as uh, anyone that's knowledgeable in trafficking that has spent time in it looks at the things that have happened to the women and the men that are being trafficked and goes, wow, those people, they just come after those women and they, they, they can't, I don't know, it's like they have no conscience. They could do that to somebody that's going to sit there and they're going to be able to do something to somebody that is vulnerable and hurting and they're getting raped multiple times a day and they just don't care. Well, I think when it comes to the story and the reason I'm here, is I actually got, I, I'm actually a former buyer. Um, that is something that I have done previously. Um, and I think there's a, part of the challenge is you've got to be able to own what you do and in life, I don't care who you are, you've got to own what you do and you've got to figure out how to move through it and ways that you can impact society start to show forth in ways that you can present things to, to let people understand. So I think I want to start with just telling 
just a, a very brief part of my story. And I think that that when we talk about a story, we have to start from the beginning. And um, like most people, I I was born. And uh, I was kidding about that, but you know, I was born and and you know when I grew up, um, I grew up in the eighties, seventies, uh, and eighties. And my parents divorced when I was six. Uh, really impacted my life. Um, you know, mom and dad were the only thing I knew, um, and I just really felt like when they separated, I felt like I didn't have a place where I belonged because there was a nasty custody battle back and forth, and those sorts of things. I lived with mom for a little bit, and then I went back to live with dad for the majority of my life. Now, my dad is an incredible guy. Love my dad. Have a great relationship with him. Um, but when I grew up, he was like most dads. He wanted me to be the best son I could be. So a lot of times he would encourage me to be better. In other words, if and as a kid, you don't always do things perfectly, right? So it, I think that I grew up as a kid learning that I needed to always be improving, always be better, always be better. Now, in one sense, that's fantastic for kids to learn. But in another sense, if you don't have a good balance in there somewhere, like for me as a kid, what I always heard was, I don't do things right. I never do things right. Um, I could do, it didn't matter if it was folding the clothes, mowing the lawn, or it could be once I got in high school, you know, you brought home seven A's and one B. Why don't you get a B, son? That was the question, right? It wasn't, wow, this is great. You got seven A's congratulations but it was always and again dad from his side was trying to make me better me on my side feeling like my parents had split and I had some identity issues with that I just seemed to learn or to hear at least throughout my childhood you're never going to be good enough you're always going to fail at whatever you try that attitude that was developed in my youth is one that kept going in my life you know, and once I went to college and moved out of the house and started going to college and that didn't suddenly change because I went to college. Now I'm an adult, right? I'm 18. I'm an adult. So now I get to do this. Well, I went to college and I went to a couple of different colleges in Arkansas, couldn't decide what I wanted to do and got out and started working. Well, I had a roommate in college and um, well, let me real quick before I jump into that, a lot of times when we talk about buyers you have to talk about pornography i mean i know that's a big thing for you james one of the big things that you fight i appreciate what you guys do on that um for me i was thinking back to the first time i saw pornography and those of you who are old on this interview will remember this i mean my the first pornography i ever saw was back in 80 i can't remember the exact year but it was when miss america got in the penthouse magazine i was 14 and my uncle who who was staying at my mom's. I was at my mom's for the summer. He left to go to work and he's like, hey, there's uh, something under the front, you know, for the recliner if you want to look at it when I'm gone. And so to me, that was my first introduction to pornography. You know, I just looking at this magazine. I mean, I, what's interesting is I can still almost see the images today sitting here and it's been, you know, almost 30 years. So I think inside of that, I didn't really dive into porn in high school. It wasn't really a thing for me. Um, it wasn't really a thing in college. I knew some people did, but I just didn't. So for my story, I ended up having a roommate from uh, Waco, Texas, since we're talking about Texas. Uh, he, uh, he and I went to college together, went to the same church together. And I remember one day we, were, uh, we shared an apartment and we got these little um, like half of an eight and a half by 11 card, which was a, uh, like a 1-900 number with a half naked woman on the front of it. So I'm like, 
what in the world is this? It was addressed to me, of course. I didn't think anything about it because I had the phone in my name. And I asked him about it. And he's like, oh, I don't know what that is. Da, 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 da. Anyway, come back a week later, there's another one in the mail. And I said, okay, dude, there's something going on here. And I know it's not me, but he said, he said, from time to time, I have called those kind of lines. I'll talk to our pastor. Well, I did what all good Christians do. I, A, assumed that somebody with a problem was going to go and report it as they said they were going to, to try to get help. And B, that it would all be taken care of. I don't need to do anything else. So I said, oh, that's great. Go talk to our pastor. Well, he said he did. Um, he didn't. Um, and so for us, what ended up happening was, uh, I guess it was about six weeks later. No, six months later. I got a phone call from a sheriff's department in Arkansas, and I worked with my roommate at the time at a company called Lunatic Fringe. They sold uh, T-shirts and caps, and their phone number was 1-800-LUNATIC. That's a whole different podcast. You'll have to have me back for sometime. But um, anyway, we worked together, and I got a call from the sheriff's department, and you know, some weird things that happened with him, like the cards that had come in the mail and that. And when I sat in the sheriff's department office, they started talking to me. Well, have you ever? I had a ticket in. Faulkner County. I'm like, well, yeah, I went to UCA. I'm sure I was speeding at some point. Have you ever done this? You've been in judge so-and-so's court. And I finally just went, what's going on, guys? And they said, well, somebody from your phone number, you called the, because back in the day, there used to be in phone books, because you couldn't just Google everything. In the phone book, teenagers would have their own lines. Well, as it turns out, my roommate was calling teenage lines from the phone book and talking sexually to teenagers. So, they said, we know you've called, he happened to call one of the local circuit court judges, his, uh, like, it was, I forget, it was his clerk's daughter. Anyway, um, at that point, I confronted him. He came out and talked about it. He talked to all the guys at our church. Everybody was very gracious with him. Um, you know, said, hey, but for a few choices, I could be where you are. So he got a lot of grace. But then ultimately, we went to a trip in Vegas and that just kind of put him over the edge. Um, when I came back from Vegas, he came back a day early. He had gotten home at 10 at night, rented a U-Haul somehow, got home and he spent about three hours on the phone calling 1-800 numbers, 1-900 numbers, uh, all of these phone lines. And so when we got the phone bill in, my best friend and I started looking through these things and go, what in the world was he calling? So we got to thinking about some of the teenage lines. So we wanted to call and tell the parents, you know, if there were any, he was gone. But we called some of the numbers, the 800, the 900 numbers. And what was fascinating was he called everything in the spectrum. It wasn't one particular type of phone call. It was, you know, gay phone calls, lesbian phone. It was everything you could think of. Well, here's where the story got interesting for me. Um, when we started calling those numbers, I remember picking a phone and calling one and I heard the voice on the other end of the line and I remember when we were calling through those I've I heard that voice and something hit inside me it's like I was like wow that is really sexy I am I mean I just I felt in a connection and an attraction there um I had been I'd begun dating someone um which that didn't have anything to do with what happened to me on the phone conversations. But as I listened to that phone conversation, I knew it wasn't something I wanted to be involved in, but I still was like, wow, I don't know how to describe what that did to me inside. Well, for me, 
I was traveling for work, uh, you know, I'd travel for work and, and I would like stop and pick up a phone and listen to that. I'd call like a 1-800 number, maybe once every month or two and just call it on the way home, listen to it on a pay phone. It wasn't like I was doing it from my home phone or anything. And over time, that became something that was more comfortable for me. Like the first time I did it, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that again. I didn't want to feel good inside. But as with most things, if you keep pushing through them, eventually it becomes normalized. So over the course of the next year, I managed to get to a point where I'd call them once a month to where I'd call probably once a week. And I'd begun traveling. I uh, traveled about three weeks out of the uh, a month. And I was about, I, I gotten married over this time frame. And as is true of most marriages, marriages don't always just start off swimmingly. Um, my um, ex-wife and I had all kinds of challenges in our marriage. We didn't communicate well. We didn't talk to each other. We had a lot of issues that for me, it reinforced something that we go all the back to the beginning of the conversation. And I felt like I'm not good enough. And what I do is going to fail. That's, I mean, it's what I learned from when I was a kid. And I, I saw that play out in my jobs, but I also saw it play out in my relationships and my marriage was no different. So clearly when I started listening to those phone calls that turned into looking at pornography, right? I could look at it online, but with me traveling so much throughout the month, um, I used to travel like I would drive from Little Rock, Arkansas to New Orleans. That'd be one way I'd drive and be there for a few days and come back. Well, I used to go get massages um, when I would go travel. And I remember going to get a massage one time. Now, this is after I'd say probably six months into my pornography addiction. I had been there and I went to a massage parlor and I remember she got done with the massage and she said, well, are you ready for your happy ending? And I'm like, uh, you know, now if it was three years earlier, I would have said, no, thank you. I'm not here for that kind of massage. I appreciate it though. Right. And I would have moved on. However, because I'd fed myself the fantasies of porn, I was like, huh, yeah, I am. And so that started this justification in my mind. I'm okay because I haven't committed adultery with my wife and cheated on my wife because it's not intercourse. Right? We play that game, which is a stupid game to play. That's again, a whole other session, I think. But inside of that, I started going to these when I would travel. Well, that just over a three and a half year period at that point, things just blew up. I mean, I, I, I found out that I could go, you know, I started going to massage parlors, which the majority of the illicit massage parlors that I went to when I would visit, you know, Dallas, Houston, Memphis, anywhere, they were near the airports, which also has all the strip clubs, which I started going to. Um, my porn addiction had become a sex addiction at this point. Um, so I look at this and it, it all, for me, the first time I paid for sex that I remember going to a prostituted woman and paying for it. Um, same thing. I felt bad about it. Even though I looked at all this porn, I, that had become a normalized belief for me. This is fine. It's a victimless crime. So I then started paying for women when I would go to places. Well, eventually I, I went back and looking at this and I found that as in, in my addiction over this full 10 year period, there was that three and a half years, it got really bad. I look back at the people that I was paying for and they were, you know, in their upper thirties is how, what I, my age was. Then it became, you know, 30 and then it became 27 and then it was 25 and then it was 21, right? There wasn't, 
I wasn't, I didn't start off going, I'm going to go after kids. That is not where I started off. I started off going, this feels good for a little while. I'm able to forget life and I enjoy this. I don't have to perform for anybody. I just have to be me. And it helps me get through life. As we say about food or church or anything else people do, we do things to help make us feel better. Um, fortunately for me, when I look back at that addiction, I once I hit below 20, I knew I was in some territory of some sort that was not good. You know, I'm in my 30s. There's no way I should be paying for someone that's 18. Um, as is typical of most addictions, if not all addictions, no matter what you feed yourself, it's never enough. So when I look back at the ages that I was going younger and younger, and I was trying different things. I mean, I didn't, you know, boring vanilla sex was not for me. I tried all kinds of stuff. Well, fortunately for me, at the very tail end of the height of my addiction, um, I tried to meet with a 15-year-old. And when I say it's not fortunate that I tried to meet with a 15-year-old, it's fortunate that when I showed up, I was surrounded by police cars and I was arrested for criminal solicitation. Um, so for me, I, I am grateful that I got arrested. I'm grateful that I went through that. I had to go through then a 10-year process of going through what the state of Texas does, which anybody that's not from Texas, it's on here. Texas does a tremendous job with buyers. They do a tremendous job with sex offenders and trying to re-educate and get people to the point where they can own what they do and live a productive life. And so why do I say all of this stuff and tell this big story? I do it because of what happened to me. I guess it was in 2018. I got the opportunity. I told my story um, to my boss in Dallas, who, who through a crazy series of connections, was connected to a large group called Shared Hope International. Shared Hope heard my story and that I was actually speaking out and not hiding it because somebody needed to talk. And they invited me to speak there. And when I went to this conference, I... Um, I mean, I'm a Christian and I do believe that God can speak to you. And so I sat down about three months before I went and said, okay, God, I got my piece of paper out. What do you want me to say? You know, I'm thinking this is going to kick off something for me. I'm going to talk publicly. This is important. I want to do a good job. And all I heard was, I don't want you to prepare anything. And so as is typical of me, I went, okay, God, maybe you didn't hear me. I said, I need to know what you want me to say. Well, I didn't prepare anything. And what it was absolutely a blessing to me because I showed up at this conference, which had uh, 600 people, the majority of whom were women. And I would say probably 10 to 20% of them were, uh, you know, victim survivors, you know, various stages of being in or just out of the life. And I sat for three days, uh, two days before I spoke and I, I spoke with survivors and I spoke with women that had come out of life. Remember I told you the story of Christine Kane. The million is just a statistic until you meet the one. And I met uh, one uh, uh, survivor that she's um, she's been out of the life for a long time now, but she was into the massage parlor thing. That's what she did too. And so we talked for hours. And why do I tell my story? Why am I willing to put out my dirty laundry for the worst thing I ever did? Because over that three days, I discovered something. And the thing that I discovered is that I had no clue that trafficking occurred in the United States. And I had zero clue that I was contributing to it. Meaning 
I would go to a, a, an illicit massage parlor in Dallas, for example, and then you know, go to an Asian massage parlor. Well, I, they would always have to buzz me in behind this locked door to go find someone to get a massage from. And I've always thought, oh, that's really smart. It gives people time to get ready and get out before if the police show up. You know, it never dawned on me. That door is locked to keep the women in that facility because they can't leave. It never dawned on me. It never dawned on me that women are being forced to go and work in strip clubs and make their money because they've got to go take this guy some money or that women that were working in prostitution were being forced to go out and have a quota to meet. And quite frankly, when I got back from that event, I was rocked. I, in the core of who I am, even though I had paid for sex, there was nothing in me that hated the women that I paid for. There was nothing in me that hated that and wanted them to suffer. There was none of that. I was a guy that was a broken man that didn't have the confidence to go get help, which is what a lot of guys talk about being tough and being strong. If you want to be tough and strong, get help. If you've got a porn addiction, if you've got a sex addiction, you need to find somebody to talk to. And I don't mean tomorrow. I mean, you need to find somebody you can trust today because real men step out and do the things that they need to do, regardless of what it costs them. And had I done that, you wouldn't know me and I wouldn't be here today. But because I sat through that convention and because a lot of those survivors were brave enough to share their story with me and to open up knowing my past, um, I just recognize that there are so many people out there that are, are the women that are in it and the men that are in it as far as the survivor side. I mean, they are going through it. They're there because of vulnerability in their life is being exploited. When I look at the traffickers, I don't care who they are. There's some vulnerability in their life, be it poverty, be it drugs. There's something in their life that drove them to that. On the buyer side, the people like me, exact same thing. I tell you this much of my childhood story to tell you, I carried this. I'm not good enough. I'm always going to fail all of my life. So decades into it, paying for sex was something that made me feel good about myself because I knew my marriage was going to fail. I knew it. And I knew I couldn't hold a relationship. So why not do this? It wasn't about them and trying to hurt them. It was about me and trying to make me feel better for a little bit. So I, I say that to say, I hope that I can be the one that allows people to see that on the other side of the abuse that's happening to these women and these men are a, 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 another group of people. I mean, I lived in Plano, Texas. I, I made $150,000 a year. My wife was a partner at a law firm. We had two homes. I mean, we, it wasn't, I didn't look like a guy in a van down by the river. I was a normal guy. And on, for all practical purposes, that's what you saw in me. Cause that's what I wanted people to see. Cause I was hiding, but um, I just, I'm hopeful that by me getting out and telling my story, the truth is I hope that there are people that will hear this and see this that are currently buying that go, wait, what did he say about this is causing slavery? Or what did he say about I need to get help and be brave? That's why I tell this story. I want people to be able to be free from the things that are holding them back and the things that are impacting them. And not only that, if they're not dealing with their own stuff, they're hurting others in the process. And it's this vicious cycle that continues to go because people won't seem to get help for what they need. And on the buyer side, let's be honest, buyers for the majority in America, and again, there's statistics out there for everything, Whoever has expendable income, and you're predominantly talking about, you know, older white males in this society, 
I, I am one of those, so I don't want to say that, but it's true. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people that with all the things that are happening with Pornhub and the exposure that they're getting, the things that are starting to come out about pornography, and hopefully conversations like this that I'm trying to have is going to make people aware that what they're doing is causing the very slavery that they would say, on the other hand, that they absolutely want to see eliminated. So that's um, that's my story in a nutshell. All right. Thank you for listening all the way through. We hope that this story was impactful for you and that uh, you were able to get some information and gain some insight. And if you're interested in uh, hearing more of this conversation, this was actually an event that we had on our Facebook uh, about a year ago, back in, I think, July of last year. Uh, so I encourage you to go back, take a look at it. Uh, there's more to his story. And uh, there's also a Q&A that we do at the end with people that were watching live. Uh, so go check that out. But if you are, if this is something that you're struggling with, if you are struggling with pornography, or if you are actually out there purchasing sex, and it's something that you're struggling with that you want to end, uh, please know that there's help out there. There are people that uh, want to help you and that uh, there are people that care for you. And we know that uh, there's a lot that happens in life to people that lead them to do what they do. And so there's, there is grace for that. There's understanding for that. And so the first thing you need to do, though, is make a decision that you want to stop. So please, you can talk to us. Feel free to reach out to us. We'll help you get the help that you need. Or if not us, go find somebody else that you can talk to, whether it be at a church or another organization, or even to the point where you even need to talk to law enforcement, potentially. Whatever you need to do to start uh, working towards finding freedom from that, I encourage you to do that as soon as possible. But thank you so much for listening. We look forward to having you again with us next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you found this information helpful, please subscribe to our channel and share with your family and friends. Our goal is to educate as many people as possible in hopes of ending child sex trafficking. For more information about Ransom Life, please visit our website at ransomlifetexas.org.